Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of James, which we've been calling The Gospel in Community. And today in our passage, we're going to be looking at true wisdom. James starts with his familiar now direct style as he asks us a direct question. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. Now, James here sets up a way of evaluating wisdom and understanding, that is knowledge, that I put it to you is almost completely alien and foreign to us today. That is, we evaluate it by the quality of the life that the person lives, or literally the beauty of their life. Today, when we evaluate whether someone is wise or knowledgeable and understanding and therefore to be listened to, we do it with a very different set of criteria. We look, for example, at the letters after their name, their academic qualifications, PhDs, for example. We look at their influence, how many followers they have on social media, or maybe the office that they hold in academia or in politics. Those are the things that, for us, determine their wisdom or their understanding. But not for James. He says true wisdom is discerned by the beauty of someone's life. Think, for example, of the way that we um, evaluate politicians. Back in 1998, when Bill Clinton was in power, the Monica Lewinsky affair and scandal broke. And it was front page news, not just because it was a moral scandal, but because at the time, only 20 years ago now, it raised serious questions for the general public about his suitability to govern. The point was that a moral failure in his private life raised questions about his ability to function as a public servant because his life had a bearing on his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding, his skill, his suitability. Fast forward 20 years to Donald Trump's election campaign. And when the scandals of the affair with Stormy Daniels broke, or when the now infamous locker room talk, when Trump's horrendous denigrating comments towards women came out, it didn't really impact his approval ratings and his election at all. In 20 years, so much had changed, such that now we don't even think that someone's life is really relevant to their suitability or their wisdom um, to govern. Now, I'm not making a comment on who you should vote for. I'm just noting the social trend, that evaluating someone's wisdom on the basis of the quality of their life is almost completely alien to us today. But not so with James. He says that if it's not shown in your life, it's not true wisdom. We're going to look at this distinction between true and false wisdom as James first of all gives us an overview of true wisdom in verses 13 and 14 and then he gets into the details of the nature of true wisdom in verses 15 to 18. So let's look first of all at the overview of true wisdom in verses 13 to 14. Let's remember our bearings in the letter and in James the summary of the letter is found in chapter 1 verses 26 to 27. James writes, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What James is saying here is that he's showing us that the issue he's writing into is the issue of what he calls um, religious or true religion. That is, those who show themselves to really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know and to know him and to live out the gospel, are those who show that they have, first of all, a tight rein on their tongues, verse 26. And we looked at that last week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. 
And then he also shows that it's people who care for the vulnerable and needy. So he writes in verse 27, to look after orphans and widows. And thirdly, it's those who have a concern for personal purity, as he puts it at the end of verse 27, keep oneself from being polluted. And he looks at that in our passage today and in the rest of chapter 4. So these three sections really are the three sections for James's book as a whole, keeping a rein on the tongue, care for the vulnerable and needy, and personal purity. And his point is this, is that you can't say you know Jesus, say you have faith in him, say you're religious or say you're wise and you understand the gospel, if it's not transforming your life. Such a disjunct between life and lip is not true religion. It's not an authentic relationship with Jesus, and it's not true wisdom. And the reason he mentions this is that we can infer from the way that James writes that the people he's writing to, these people who are scattered, who are in the diaspora, um, are those who consider themselves wise and understanding. So when he says in chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you, he's calling them out. He's saying, I've heard that you think you're wise and understanding, but I've also heard how you live. I've heard how your speech is no different to the world around you. I've heard how you care more about those who are rich than the poor and the vulnerable. And therefore, you're not truly wise because you don't have that transformation of life. And that's what he wants to expose. So what does real wisdom, true wisdom look like then, according to James, or verse 13, it's a good life, literally a beautiful life. The picture here is of a life that, when you look at it, it's just intuitively attractive, and you say, that is someone who is living life well. And what does he also say about it in verse 13? He says, this beautiful life is shown by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That word for humility there means a gentleness. It means a sense of not trying to force yourself on a situation or on the world, trying to get ahead, trying to be in control, but instead humbly trusting God and seeking to serve him and serve others. Do you notice also how James contrasts it in verse 14 with two aspects or two vices, bitter envy, literally bitter desires, and selfish ambition, again literally translated, strife in the heart. The difference is between seeking to serve God and trust him and serve others, and constantly seeking to get ahead, to be ahead, to be better than others, to be noticed, to be admired, to be considered knowledgeable and wise, whether you actually are or not. James says that's not true wisdom. True wisdom is shown in an integrity of life, literally from the word wholeness, integer, where what you say and how you live stack up and there's a beauty and there's attractiveness about that. One of the dangers for us as a society is that we have so much knowledge um, and understanding at our fingertips. Just take to your search engine, take to Google, type it in and it comes up. And because there are so many blogs out there, you can read in 600 words, you know, pretty much any subject that you want to find out. And it, it gives the veneer there of understanding and wisdom. But of course, the problem is just reading a blog, just knowing, you know, kind of a superficial level about something doesn't really make you knowledgeable, doesn't really make you wise. We're the I know generation because you can say something to someone and quickly they come back with a rejoinder, yeah, I know, by which they mean 
I've read a blog. But reading a blog doesn't really mean you know, you know, because it's not integrated into your life. There's a great scene in the film Good Will Hunting where Robin Williams is pointing this out to the childhood prodigy Will Hunting, who is an absolute mathematical genius, but not just maths, he's able to read and digest and, you know, kind of know about lots of books. But Robin Williams is pointing out to him that your life is just not stacking up with what you know. He says this, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo? Oh, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, but you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at the beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. And then he goes on to talk about love and the difference between knowing about love and really loving someone and being vulnerable to them. And his point is this, life, wisdom, knowledge, they're, they're not theoretical. You don't really know something if you just know about it, but it's not integrated into your life. You're not really wise if you just know the theory, but it's not integrated into your life. And how true that is as well for us as Christians. We might know the theory about who Jesus is, but we don't really know him unless it's changing our lives. We can know lots about the Bible, but the Bible is not an academic text just to know about. It is words of life, words for life, to change us, to shape us. It has to be integrated into our lives. For the I know generation, that's a great problem. We have to be patient to walk it out, to let it change us. That's the overview of true wisdom. Let's look now in more detail at the nature of true wisdom. In these verses from verse 15 uh, following, there's a compare and contrast that is set up. And I've put them in a table to help us and draw out the nature of true wisdom. First of all, James talks about where true and false wisdom come from. So he looks at the origins of false wisdom, as he says, one that is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. And he compares it to the origins of true wisdom who, that comes down from heaven, comes down from above. He then talks about the very different characteristics of false wisdom and true wisdom. False wisdom, verse 16, is envious and is about selfish ambition. True wisdom, verse 17, is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial and sincere. And he highlights the very different results of the true and false wisdom. False wisdom, verse 16, results in disorder and evil. True wisdom, verse 18, results in peace and righteousness. Now let's look in more detail at some of the aspects of these two very different ways of true and false wisdom. First, the characteristics and the result. False wisdom is about envy and selfish ambition. Now this is very challenging for us today because Ambition is not, and selfish ambition would not even really be considered a vice in our culture. You know, the motto of our times, uh, you do you, you get ahead, you love yourself. Hey, because if you don't love yourself, no one else is going to love you for you, are they? You know, you do you, self-actualization, self-realization. 
And the view that this presents of the world is that each of us must go out there and force our own agenda on the world to make our mark. Life is about us, right? And so the world orientates around us. And of course, with technology, we're actually able to do that. With tailored browsing experience, our, our browser does orientate around us. But the danger is we then think that the world orientates around us, or at least should orientate around us. And that is selfish ambition. And of course, if I'm looking out for my interests and you're looking out for your interests and we both think that the world orientates around us, we're on a collision course. And so what's the result? Disorder and evil. Now, evil might seem strong here, but the word for evil literally means base. It's a picture of well, what we sometimes say even in Western society of our base instincts or a race to the bottom as a picture of society that's just getting worse and worse. And that's what happens when each of us only looks out for our own interests, then things just get worse and worse. Disorder, chaos, shouting across the political divide, a cancel culture which is just about name calling and about trying to get one up on people and use your power to push them down. It can seem like a race to the bottom sometime, can't it? And sadly, it infiltrates church even. You know, I'm conscious that at this time we might even have people who are arriving in London and seeking you know, to look and evaluate which church they should be part of. Most people, when they do that, ask this question, does the church suit me? Notice the question? It puts me at the centre. But that shouldn't be the question we should be asking. We should be thinking about, does this church glorify God? Does it enable me to serve others? Is there a vision and a community here that I can be part of and a common good that I'm passionate about in a way that I can serve that community and serve that vision? It's about God and about looking out to others. If we put ourselves at the center of the church, then we'll just treat the church like a glorified restaurant. And what do you do in a restaurant when you don't like the service? You leave, right? Maybe leaving it a two-star review as you step out the door. Brothers and sisters, that's not the church. The church shouldn't orientate around me. We should seek to be part of the church together, serving one another. That's the vision. And look at how attractive the contrast is. Verse 17. Peace-loving. That means seeking peace in our relationships with one another. Considerate, which means not just thinking about me, but actually considering the needs and the wants of other people. Submissive, which in the original is uh, literally open to reason. That means you're open to being reasoned with. You're prepared to admit you're wrong. You invite other people's opinions. You don't think that you've got the monopoly on wisdom or on understanding. You're actually wise enough to know you don't know everything and you want to therefore listen to people and invite them into your life to correct you. Full of mercy and good fruit. That means the opposite of being harsh and condemning, but instead being quick to forgive, quick to seek restoration in relationships, the absolute opposite of a cancel culture. And then the last two should clearly be paired in the original because impartial literally means not being divisive or judgmental and sincere means in the original not being excessively or over the top divisive and judgmental. And what is the result of all these virtues shown to us in verse 18? Peace. That is a rich biblical word. It's the word in Hebrew, shalom. And it means a transforming harmony in society 
and in ourselves. A sense of being at one with one another and at one with ourselves. All things working out well. Peace, and the word which so often in the Old Testament goes together with shalom, is righteousness, sadiq, and mishpat. That means a sense of justice. The world working well, relationships ordered well. God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what James is doing here as he does this compare and contrast between true and false wisdom is he's painting a very vivid picture. Imagine it like this. Imagine two jazz bands or imagine two orchestras that were very, very different. In the first, let's say in the first jazz band, you've got people who are just competing with one another. They're not playing together like a band at all. They're all playing at the same time. They're all trying to play a solo. They all want the limelight. They're all trying to play as loudly as possible over one another. What would be the end result? A cacophony, a din, disharmony, disorder. It would be horrible. You wouldn't want to go and be a part of that band or listen to that band, would you? But then he says, imagine another band a band where in that there's a mutuality. Each musician cares about the other. And so they seek to let the others um, show off their talents and their gifts, each one serving the other. They all playing one piece with a harmony and a concord. And as they do, as they make that music together, each drawing out the skill of the other, each listening to the other, each working in harmony with the other, isn't that a band you want to be part of? Isn't that the band that you would want to go and listen to? Well, as you think about those two realities, which one seems to you to be a closer reflection of our society at the moment? Let me ask a more painful question. Which one is maybe a closer reflection of the church at the moment? Can you see true wisdom is about being peace-loving, about considering the good of others? about being reasonable, about seeking mercy and restoration. It's a harmony, not that we're all the same, but we all bring our different gifts to serve one another, to serve God. And that leads to peace and righteousness. And notice how James describes we can have this because it's so attractive, but it's a lofty ideal, isn't it? Well, look at the origins, verse 15. False wisdom is earthly. That is, it It just comes from the world around us. It is unspiritual. That is, it's just the natural inclination of the human ego. And then he says it's demonic, which might seem excessively strong to us. You might think, oh, come on. I mean, it's a bit selfish, but it's not demonic. But I think here he's referring again back to the Old Testament and the tradition in the Old Testament, particularly when you see in the Garden of Eden, that sin and that natural disposition, we call it natural disposition, to put ourselves at the center is actually the lie of the devil who whispers in the ears of Adam and Eve and still whispers in our ears, you do you, it's all about you. You get yours because if you don't, God won't give it to you and no one else will. That's the sense in which it's demonic. But the true wisdom by contrast of verse 17 comes from heaven or literally comes from above. And I think this refers to two things. This refers to the truly wise person who came from above that James is thinking about. And it refers as well to the truly wise word that has come to us from above. First of all, the truly wise person. James here is referring to his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the one who lived a life of unparalleled beauty. Albert Einstein referred to him as the luminous Nazarene for the way that his life was so stunningly beautiful that it lit up the pages of history. You want to see a beautiful life? Look at the life of Jesus Christ. He always speaks well. He keeps a tight rein on his tongue, even in pressurized situations. Always knows the right thing to say, not holding back when he needs to speak truth to power, but equally speaking words of gentleness to those who are vulnerable. A care for the poor and the vulnerable, such that a bruised reed he did not break and a smoldering wick he did not snuff out. In Jesus Christ, there's a beauty of seeing virtues brought together that in normal people we just don't see together. So we see a remarkable humility, and yet we see an incredible boldness and courage as well at the same time, whereas so often in life those who are humble are too backwards in coming forward, but not with Jesus. We see Jesus able to welcome the poor and the vulnerable, but equally able to be as strong as a lion when taking on corruption in the institutions of politics or the church of the day. A beautiful life, unparalleled beauty lived well, and ultimately a beautiful life that in its beauty was accentuated by his death. Because here's the thing, Jesus was ultimately wise, the perfect wisdom from above, showing us what a wise life looks like. And yet, the wisdom of God is not the same as the wisdom of the world. He was prepared to look like a fool in the world's eyes, being rejected, stripped, scorned, put up on a cross, dying the death that we deserve to die for all of the ways that we say, life's gonna be about me. I'm gonna put my own selfish ambition at the center of the world. God should serve me, others should serve me. He died for that ego, for that sin, for that selfishness, for that self-obsession. So that as he died and was rejected, looking like a fool, he was revealing the wisdom of God. And here's the wisdom, that life comes through dying to self. That restoration comes through not advancing your own agenda, but forgiving other people. That happiness comes through sacrifice. Jesus showed us that path. He lived that perfectly wise life so that we might now be motivated in the power of the Spirit to follow him and to live it out as well perfectly wise person from above. Secondly, the truly wise word that comes from above. As we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it makes us want to listen to his words. And we see then his words as being these beautiful words. They're not just true though, they are true, but they're also attractive and we want to live it out in our lives. And here's the thing, living it out in our lives takes time. It takes patience to become a peace-loving, considerate, reasonable, full of mercy, impartial and sincere person it doesn't just happen overnight. You can't just read a blog about it and then, hey presto, it happens in your life. It takes the patience of the Holy Spirit to work in your life. It takes time and commitment. Let me illustrate what I mean. Any skill that is worthwhile in life, take even just kicking a football or playing a musical instrument, you don't just rock up one day and perfectly kick a football or play a musical instrument with wonderful improvisation such that you can play, do you? You have to first of all do drills. You have to break it down. You have to slow it down. When you teach a child to kick, you break it down into the constituent parts. 
not so that later in 10 years time they're still breaking the skill down, but it's so that they can run freely and in the moment kick a ball perfectly and with good technique. In the same way, when we're learning a musical instrument, we learn scales and arpeggios, not so that when you play in a concert, you stand up and play scales and arpeggios, but because that's the way that you ingrain the skill in your life so that you can now play with spontaneity and freedom. Well, so it is as we come to God's word. We see virtues like peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, impartiality, sincerity. And initially those are awkward, they're counter to our human nature. We don't want to live that way. So we have to unlearn sinful habits and we have to then displace them with godly habits. And at first that feels awkward and it feels difficult. It doesn't come naturally, that's the point. It's not natural, it's spiritual. But as we continue to pursue those virtues in our lives over a period of time, they become ingrained in our lives such they do become part of the way we live. They do become more natural as they merge in our lives and we can start to live them out in a more free way. But it requires time and commitment and prayer, reliance on the Holy Spirit and a community of people around us to help us as we walk this out together. That, James says, is the truly wise person and the truly wise life. Let's live this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the disposition of our hearts that so often wants to just have things now and do it quickly and therefore be wise, be understanding by reading a blog and it's done. Instead, please forgive us for our natural self-absorption, for putting ourselves at the centre of the world and change our hearts so that we would see the importance of living this wise life out of an integration between our, our lives and our lip, between what we say and what we do. And then help us to have patience as we pursue this together as a community of grace who seeks to walk this out by ingraining these virtues in our life. That our lives might become beautiful, that they might become a witness to the world of your work in us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.